Thank you, Nell and Julia. Wasn't that wonderful? If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to grab that and pray for you this week. And uh, my Bible is open to Romans chapter 8 and would invite you to turn there as well as we return to our study in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. This week I read about Cecil Rhodes, who was um, one of the richest men who ever lived. And uh, he was an Englishman who immigrated to South Africa for health reasons and there amassed a huge fortune in um, the diamond mining uh, industry. He died when he was only 49 and in his will, he left most of his riches, not to his immediate family, much to their resentment, but to endow the famous Rhodes Scholarship. So you ever hear the phrase, a Rhodes Scholar? It's linked back to Cecil Rhodes and his um, establishment of this fund. When, when, when Rhodes's brother Arthur uh, learned that he had received nothing, he quipped, well, there it is. It seems I will have to win a scholarship, <laughs> which I don't think he did. The theme of inheritance, uh, do you notice how that often comes into play with novels and movies? And um, sometimes the inheritance is a source of great sorrow as greed just grips the family and it's filled with bitterness and acrimony. Other times the inheritance is a surprise. The estate falls upon a humble, needy person and their life has changed from poverty and despair to one of means. I'm reminded of Dr. Thorne a movie we love to watch, uh, the masterpiece uh, written by Anthony Trollope. Uh, it's a story that leaves a massive, where a massive estate is given to an overlooked and mistreated um, young woman. However, we, we know that even the best inheritances don't ask, outlast the decay of this world, do we? They don't bring ultimate satisfaction. The inheritance given to believers, however, brings no disappointment, unless you're expecting it all in this life, which wasn't promised. This ought to fuel our hope for heaven. This ought to fuel our hope to know our God. Any honest reading of the Bible doesn't teach that our inheritance is given in this world. In fact, we find in scripture that the future inheritance is combined with suffering as a complete package. Future hope combined with suffering as an inseparable package for the believer. When we read the storied lives of those in the Old Testament, I was reminded of Hebrews 11, where it mentions some of them like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And we began to look at the sufferings they experienced in this life. They. They suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword and so forth. We, we also hear that from the teaching of Jesus. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He said that on the eve of being arrested and crucified. We look at other letters in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 gives quite a list, an unforgettable list of the sufferings that he went through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was in the 
spent a night in the sea, out at sea. I was in shipwrecks and adrift and frequent journeys, dangers here and dangers there. On top of all of that was the daily pressure of the churches upon me. When we read our Bibles and exegete our lives, there is always a tension between present suffering and future glory. One commentator refers to this tension as the hurts and hallelujahs of life. In our text this morning, we find the promise of our future inheritance mingled with the groaning of this world. And so this word is given, this verse is given in Romans 8, verse 17. It's given for your joy. It's given for your happiness in Christ. So let's look at this text. Romans 8, we're returning after a number of weeks of a hiatus. We're coming back to Romans 8, and we'll be reminded in verse 1 that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ, you'll never be condemned. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and death through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The reason we make so much about the cross and the resurrection is that is the centerpiece of God's bondage deliverance that is given to a sin-filled world. Sinners like us, we find relief at the cross. Not just at the cross where he paid for our sins once for, and for all, but in the resurrection that he has risen from the dead and he is Lord and he's coming back and gives to us a resurrection hope. Flesh and blood cannot in, enter the kingdom of heaven, the scripture says, but we have a resurrection hope in Christ that we will have a body to spend eternity with him forever. God cannot bless the sin of your, of your past, but he can and he will bless a broken and repentant heart that flees to Christ. To those who draw near to him, the Holy Spirit will come to dwell within him. In verses 5 through 11, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within to guide and to empower the believer. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says that. If you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So we owe nothing to our flesh. Even as Christians, we're in a lifelong battle of putting it off and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We owe nothing to our flesh. We owe the Spirit of God everything. We're no longer under condemnation. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. We have a calling upon our lives in which we're to walk in the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We are to set our minds on the Spirit of all people. We're to have life and peace through the Spirit of God who dwells within us. He says in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God, well, those are the sons of God. So one of the litmus tests we ought to take regularly as believers is really asking the question, am I being led by the Spirit? Not only that, he says in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. And this is another picture of our great redemption that we've been adopted into God's forever family. Declared legally righteous, yes. Adopted into his family as sons, yes. The spirit himself, verse 16 says, bears witness with our spirit. So this is really a, a, a strong understanding of biblical assurance. Does your spirit bear witness with the spirit of God? 
Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that indeed you belong to him? I just wish I could get some assurance. That's where you get assurance. Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? And you begin to say, well, what basis do I have for even claiming to know God and to, to, to be a partaker of his salvation? And you begin to review your life and you ask questions like, has there ever been a time where I've really repented of my sins? Where I've turned from my sins and sorrow and I have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ alone. And if all of his promises are true and I'm resting in what he has done for me, I have every reason to have great assurance. But it's not because I'm talking you into anything. It's God's spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you belong to him, that you've been born again, that you're a believer and a child of God. So that preps us for verse 17. Ready? And if children, if you are a child of God, heirs, heirs. If you're a child of God, then you're an heir of what? Of God. That is a fantastic statement. An heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's break up this verse, one verse, in several ways, four to be exact. Every believer is an heir of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're an heir of God. What an incredible thing this is, to be an heir of God himself, to be the heir of the one who owns everything. Think of that for a moment. Maybe you've stumbled in here today, it's been a tough week, and you're feeling a bit pauper-like. Maybe a little a bit down with events in your life. Would you grab onto this thought this morning? I'm an heir of God because of Jesus Christ. My present circumstances are only temporary. The Holy Spirit is the inter- internal wor- witness to testify to my heart. He mentions air heirs three times in verse 17. Uh, That is a clue that it's significant. And what is an heir? An heir is one who is legally entitled to the property and possession of an estate upon the death of the benefactor. An heir is a beneficiary. They have not done the work. They're the recipient of the work. Now here's the good thing with being an heir of God. He doesn't die ever. He's eternal. He is infinite immortal, invisible, our God only wise. He does not die. And so his inheritance, what brings him glory is he's gathering a people to enjoy this inheritance for all of eternity. This idea of heir is a compound word and it means to hold, to have in one's power, to distribute. God the Father is the giver of all things. And I'm wondering maybe in the flow of theology in the church over the last 50 years, if God the Father might not be the forgotten member of the Trinity. Much is made of Christ as it should be. Much has been made of the Holy Spirit in recent years in the evangelical church in the West as it should be. But let us not forget God the Father. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray, O Lord, what did he say? Right out of the gate. 
When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. When you pray, it is God the Father you address. Every blessing has come from God the Father through the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. When we pray, God the Father, through the Son, it's applied by the Spirit, and we should take great comfort in that. So we're heirs of the one who owns it all. That's expressed in different ways in the Bible. In the the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8, the silver and the gold are mine, says the Lord. Psalm 50, the Psalm of Asaph, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a poetic way of saying, I own it all. The French writer of the Middle Ages, Francois Rabelais, said, I owe much. I possess nothing, and I'll give the rest to the poor. Well, our God is the opposite of that. He, he owes nothing. He possesses everything, and he gives it all to his children. So the New Testament is not silent about our inheritance as heirs of God. We're no longer slaves, but sons, an heir through the promise to God. Galatians 4 tells us we're heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.29. Titus 3.7, we're justified by his grace. God the Father justifies us, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 1, a section on Christ being greater and superior to angels, it says in the last verse of that chapter, angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. All believers are heirs of God. And that's important to be reminded of. I'm reminded of something I shared with you a little while ago, some months ago, by Paul Tripp. If you forget your identity in Jesus Christ and the riches that are yours, you can live like a poor person like a spiritual homeless person just trying to get through the day. They live as if they were poor when in fact they are amazingly rich. Secondly, not only are we heirs of God, but we, every believer is a fellow heir with Christ. We're co-joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Jesus is the main heir. The Father has transferred all things to the Son. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in John 5, even in his earthly ministry, Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me. He, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We now share the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. His righteousness has become our righteousness. His holiness has become our holiness. His strength has become our strength. We receive some in this lifetime. And this is why I fear that Christians are not as enthusiastic about this as we should be. Is somehow we, we take these exalted claims and hold them up against our life. And we think, is this really true? I don't feel that rich. And I think there's a danger of this over-realized eschatology, as it's called, which is the error of the prosperity gospel where you're a follower of Jesus, pick your car out, anyone you want, you'll get it. Pick your house, 
He wants you to be rich. You're God's kids. That's an over-realized eschatology seeking to apply eternal riches into an earthly dwelling and often is skewed to the core, is skewed to the core, and how we're to understand this. We receive some in our lifetime. We, we must live for the pleasure of our Savior. Jim, Jim Hamilton writes this compelling thought. Let me invite you to imagine something better than winning the Heisman Trophy, something better than winning the MVP of the team that wins the World Series. Imagine yourself being the doctor who discovers the cure of cancer and now try to conceive of something better than that, the highest military decorated decoration awarded by the United States government, the Medal of Honor. Imagine something better than being honored to receive the Medal of Honor. What could be better than the Heisman, the MVP? Better than finding a cure for cancer? Better than winning a Medal of Honor? Hamilton writes, I'll tell you what's better. One day the dead will be raised and the multitudes will stand before Almighty God. And on that day, King Jesus will say to those who trusted him and lived for him, well done, good and faithful servant. And on that day, no Heisman Trophy, no Dove Award, no World Series MVP, no medical or military achievement will be worth more than those words. What will motivate us to live for that commendation? Notice with me thirdly, every believer is given the unpopular promise of suffering. You're heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. And then he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Every believer is given the unpopular promise of suffering. See how this guts the prosperity gospel? which says and accuses, you got something wrong in your life? You must have sin in your life, like Job's friends. You got something wrong in your life. If you're a true child of God, you will share in this suffering. If you have faith in Christ, you can count on swimming upstream, living against the current. That's the call to be a witness for him. Suffering that comes because we are suffering. So this is so clear in our reading of Scripture, the teachings of Christ. In fact, the title Christian was a term of derision. In Acts 11, the, the believers in Antioch were called Christians, which was not a compliment. Um, I read to you just a moment ago the, the suffering of God's people. And I would just urge us not to discount that as what happens on the other side of the world in different venues. It happens now. It happens through personal sufferings. It's increasingly happening through um, your witness for Christ if you're going to stand for him in the workplace, in your family. It's going to cost you. Cost you what? How about peace? How about having family members who hate your convictions because you can't, you can't leave biblical truth in order to satisfy family relationships. And we know that it brings martyrdom and there have been more mar- martyrs in the last 120 years 
than in the history of the church. I heard the story of John Rogers this week. John Rogers um, was the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. And it does us good to hear this. On February 4th, 1555, John Rogers paid the price. It wasn't even the sword. That would have been an easier way to die. No, they strapped him to the stake in front of his church, in front of his 11 children and his wife, and they burned him to death. There are hills on which to die. The gospel truths we're called to die for. In Romans 8, 36, for your sake, we're being put to death, sheep to the slaughter. And so God is doing a thousand things in your life. We're only aware of a couple of them, but <laughs> at any given time, but would there be within us, Lord, if I would reign with you, would I be willing to suffer for you? If I would be a co-heir with Christ, am I willing to bear that reproach? There's an interesting statement in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 13, going outside the camp and bearing his reproach, not being ashamed of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy, remember this. Don't forget this, Timothy. Yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that is the call. If we would reign with him, if we would be co-heirs with him, he says, provided we suffer with him. I think it's good to do some heart, heart check here. Lord, am I ashamed of your name? Has my silence been overwhelming when it should, it should be speaking the truth in these circumstances? May God fill us today with a holy boldness to speak the truth in our generation. Notice with me fourthly, and then the Lord's table. Every believer is destined for glory. Every believer is destined for glory, for heaven. Glory in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kabod means the weight of God. It referred to the full weight of God. Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, no one can see my face and live, Moses, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you and you will see my hind parts as I pass. Sufferings have a purpose. We share in glory. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you, you breathe your last, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And as precious as that is, there's a full hope, a resurrection hope, that at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ shall rise and receive a resurrection body by which to live with him for all of eternity. And so when we look at our inheritance, we can think of some wonderful things. They're not unbiblical. They're not selfish to say to be in Jesus Christ means that my home is in heaven. Jesus has gone to pre prepare a place for me there, that where he is there, I shall be also. A glorified body, which we've mentioned, a resurrection body that is no longer susceptible to death, disease. A new body. Saved to sin no more. A perfected spirit. You ever get really sick of you? 
I think Christians should feel that way. <laughs> you get sick of you. You're sick of those attitudes, sick of those same besetting sins. Sick of the disappointments that seem to be overwhelming at times. And what ought to rescue us when that despair comes is, I'm, I'm going to be saved to sin no more. With a perfected spirit and eternal reward and full access. But you know, all of those things are wonderful. And uh, my last chapter of life on the altar, I expand on the hope of heaven and why it's a glorious thought for me as I think about perfect worship. None of us have ever been in a worship service that hasn't been marked by sin. Bad thoughts. You know, we're in the middle of it. Why am I thinking about that? Or we drift into some mundane thought. Part of our hope of heaven is that we will be saved to sin no more so that there would be perfect worship, perfect rest, perfect work. Work was not a curse. The first thing God did when he created Adam was gave him a job. Sin's what ruined it. Perfect work, perfect adventure. All in the presence of God, enjoyed as it should be enjoyed. Does that excite you? Does that put a thrill in your heart? Does that fill you with a sense of assurance that when I go to the cemetery to say goodbye to a loved one in the Lord, they're with him? And that we have a resurrection hope yet to come. As wonderful as those things are, that's not the main, the main prize of our inheritance. And I think this probably shows our lack of maturity and our lack of understanding of the scripture more than anything else. The greatest inheritance that you and I could ever have is God himself. God himself. Theologians describe this in the book of Revelation as the beatific vision, which means what Moses couldn't see and live the redeemed will see and enjoy forever and ever and ever. Revelation 22.4, the greatest blessing is to look upon the face of God. So what would be a good indication that you're preparing yourself to go to heaven? Do you think anybody will be admitted into heaven who has no desire for it? No desire for the things of God? views church and any type of spiritual uh, commitment at all as a hassle? You think they're going to heaven? I don't think so. I think this, this needs to be a foretaste and a training ground of greater things yet to come. Now we are saved by grace through and through. Not of ourselves. It's the work of God. But the greatest treasure, the greatest inheritance is... God himself and every believer is destined for that glory. And it says in Revelation that the glory of God will light up the entire universe. No secondary light sources. No more sun. The glory of God will illumine forever. You can read this in Revelation 22. Our greatest inheritance is God 
himself. We get a little inkling of that in the Old Testament. If you remember the tribal allotments of Israel, what did Levi get as far as land goes? Nothing. They didn't get a land allotment. They would serve as the priests. And God says, I give you the best part. I give you myself. I'm your inheritance. I think of Genesis 15 when God calls Abraham and um, he's recommitting his covenant and it says in Genesis 15, 6 that Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But prior to that, the Lord said to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What he's saying in that is, I'm your shield, and in fact, Abram, I'm your reward. I'm your reward. A full inheritance. And so, you know, it really sets the, the pace, doesn't it, on how we view things? It should. Would you allow this truth? You're an heir of God. You're joint heirs with Christ provided you're willing to suffer for him and not be ashamed of your Savior who hung in the rain naked and died for your sins? You're an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ, a fellow sufferer of Christ, and you're destined for glory. So how should I view my life in light of that? Would you think with me on this as we close right here? Am I going to be as worried about my things and my reputation and my status and my creature comforts? I like them as much as you do. But this is a, a resetting of the bar in my mind on what's really important. I came across this picture from John Newton and the, um, the works of the Reverend John Newton written um, 300 years ago or so. So Newton gives this story. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down. His carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. In light of such a great inheritance. And we think of the little nickel and dime issues of our life my air conditioner is broken. My air conditioner is broken. My refrigerator is broken. My refrigerator is broken. We've been praying about that around here for one dear sister. <laughs> My health is broken. My health is broken. And lie to the inheritance and lie to where we're going. <laughs> May we put a hand over our mouths and give praise to God. What a hope. What a hope indeed. 
I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward and we'll have a time to worship this morning, remembering the body and blood of Christ. Jared's going to lead us in that. May it be a time of confession, a time of worship as we express our love to Christ for the love he's given to us.